Hey everyone, I'm Eliza. And I'm Riss. And you're listening to Little Sleep Much Reading Podcast. Finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up and he went completely out of his mind. Hey everyone, we also just wanted to thank Lexi Anderson, um, who has graciously supplied the intro music for the podcast and any other little rhythmic moments you hear throughout. Um, You can thank her crazy insane uh, piano skills for that. So shout out to Lexi. Thank you for being here. We love you, our musical lady. And this is our second episode, which is uh, our favorite reads. So Eliza will be going first. I'm going to be talking about After Dark uh, by Haruki Murakami. Um, And can I also just start off by saying that picking a favorite book never ceases to be one of the hardest things I am asked in my day-to-day life. I never know what to say. So I feel like, I I don't know, because this is a favorite, right? Like, is it my favorite? Perhaps. But I feel like I have so many favorite books and I like them for so many different reasons. And each of them would be like interesting to talk about on their own. But there's something just so unique about this book that I think it is kind of a great one to talk about when we're talking about favorites. So I guess just to get into it, Haruki Murakami is a, for those who don't know, (laughs) is a Japanese writer. He is one of my personal favorite writers of all time. I first got into his work by reading his short stories. I think the first thing of his that I ever read was Super Frog Saves Tokyo. And that was followed by some excerpts from After the Quake and uh, Underground. Then I read his short story where I'm likely to find it in a genre bending class as a sophomore in college. And, and that was the moment that his work was really cemented for me as like, okay, this is exactly the kind of thing that I'm looking for. For anybody who hasn't read that short story or hasn't even read Murakami, I highly recommend it because to this day, after reading, you know, dozens and dozens of short stories and some of his novels, I think that is perhaps his best work, which, hey, maybe that's a little bit out there to say, but that's how I feel. We're just going to give a little bit more background on him. He is born in 1949 and publishes his first novel in 1979. All of his work is in Japanese, and then it will be translated by different translators, especially if you find um, copies of his stories online, it will sometimes be different people or in his short story collections, it will sometimes be different people. But the the person who translates um, After Dark and a lot of his novels, and I think does, I mean, I don't know because I have not read the original Japanese, but I think does a really good job capturing Murakami's style is Jay Rubin. And this book, After Dark, was published in 2004. And just to give a little bit of a summary about it, it follows a teenage girl, Mari, who is sitting in a Denny's in Tokyo in the middle of the night when a boy, Takashi, comes over to sort of talk with her and hang out with her. And you find out that Takashi knows Mari's sister, Ari, and you also later find out that Ari is in some sort of coma. Uh, She's asleep and it's insinuated that she can't wake up. 
doesn't really reveal the circumstances to which that happened, but you kind of get the vibe at the beginning and throughout that the reason Mari is out in the middle of the night in Tokyo, pretty far away from her neighborhood, is to kind of escape this sort of trauma, uh, familial trauma that's happening. And you so you also find out that Takashi knows Ari or Ari. They were schoolmates. And just to give it a little bit of, you know, unnecessary detail, Mari, the main character, is a bit younger than them. She's about 19. And I think Takashi and Ari are supposed to be older, college-aged. So that's how the novel starts off. And it sort of flips back and forth between Mari and Takashi as they go on a sort of road odyssey through Tokyo in the middle of the night where they meet a ton of different people. They meet a former female wrestler who is now the manager of a love hotel. They meet a sex worker who has been beaten and uh, mistreated by this office worker. They meet the, the Chinese mafia all of this different stuff. And it's flipping back and forth between this road odyssey and Mari's sister, Eri, who this whole time has been asleep in her room, seemingly under some sort of coma with the television on. And we're kind of watching her at some points, it feels like through the television, but there's also this figure with a mask that's there that's watching her. And it's one of those books that you definitely have to read to sort of be like, I think I understand what's happening here. But that's just to give you a little bit of a feel for it. I love this book. I feel like it's another one of those where I can't say enough about it. And I probably could, I'm probably forgetting things while doing this review and like could talk about it for hours and hours and keep remembering different things about the book uh, and being able to sort of talk about those. But to go on our scale for readability, I gave this a nine. I, I'll get into this a little bit more later when we talk about form. But I think uh, it's binge worthy because of the way that it was written. But even more so, I would put this on the spectrum of readability that it doesn't get out of your head when you close it. And those are my absolute favorite kinds of books. I don't know if you're writing a good book if you can close it and the reader's not going to go think about it for the next 20, 30 minutes, that's just something that I'm a firm believer in. And this book is exactly that. I don't think there was ever a chapter where I like closed in was like, hey, going about my day, not going to think about After Dark again. Um, just done with that. And now that we're done with that. <laughs> exactly. Um, so that's how I feel about the readability. And this is sort of to transition into the next way we're going to be kind of looking at books is form. And I do think the reason that this book is so readable and why it's one of my favorite books I've ever read is the form. It's really incredible because of the way it takes you back and forth between these two landscapes, Tokyo and the bedroom of the older sister. But another really interesting thing about it is it also shows you the passage of time with each chapter as if you're traveling through the night with them. Um, so obviously listeners can't see it, but each chapter has a clock and it tells you what hour it is. And That's so, so cool. it's really freaking cool. And when we start, it's 11.56 p.m. And when we end, it's nearly seven in the morning. And something I noticed, too, that I personally really enjoyed, and it was something that I feel like as a reader, as a writer, was something that it wasn't necessarily easy to notice. But if you did, you're like, oh, my God, that was really cool. Was that at least maybe I'm just making this up but from what I recall the chapters get shorter and shorter the closer you get to the end 
And so he picks up the pace big time. And I always really love when that happens. Mm -hmm. And I always think it's really strategic as well. I don't think that's something that you do by accident. And so that's just kind of an example of what a talented writer Murakami is. And I don't know, the other thing that's just really, I don't know, there's so many things about the form that I feel like I could talk about, but not going to obviously get into all of it. But the other thing that just popped in my head when talking about how it starts at like 11 and and, and ends at seven in the morning, I've never been to Tokyo, but I think it's meant to capture Tokyo really well. Because when she starts in the Denny's, all of the business people are sort of leaving for the day. And when she's heading back to her own house or even around like 5 a.m. very early in the morning, the people are coming back to work. And basically, this is all to say, I think Murakami is almost always critique, not always, but often critiquing late stage capitalism in his work. And I think this is just a minuscule example of him doing that of him sneaking this kind of, I don't want to say cultural critique, but this kind of cultural observation into Mm -hmm. this short, like however many 230 page book. So I don't know, that's just something that kind of popped into my head just now. But staying on form, because I think to me, the form of this book is the thing that stands out the most and sets it apart basically from any book I've ever read in my life is that the book is from the uh, a we perspective, which I have Ooh. just never seen. I had never seen before um, reading this. Before I get into that a little bit more, I'm going to pull out an example. This is the beginning of this kind of second part of it. We are inside a Denny's. Unremarkable but adequate lighting, expressionless decor and dinnerware, floor plans designed to the last detail by management and engineers, innocuous background music at low volume, staff meticulously trained to deal with customers by the book. Welcome to Denny's. Everything about the restaurant is anonymous and interchangeable, and almost every seat is filled. After a quick survey of the interior, our eyes come to rest on a girl sitting by the front window. So it, it's, it's very weird. And even the first page too, you sort of have, I'm, I'm, I might go back and read this too. You have like this bird's eye view of Tokyo and it says, eyes mark the shape of the city. Through the eyes of a high flying night bird, we take in the scene from midair. In our broad sweep, the city looks like a single gigantic creature or more like a single collective entity created by many intertwining organisms. Countless arteries stretch to the ends of its elusive body, circulating a continuous supply of fresh blood cells, sending out new data and collecting the old, sending out new consumables and collecting the old, sending out new contradictions and collecting the old. To the rhythm of its pulsing, all parts of the body flicker and flare up and squirm. I kept reading that for longer than I needed to just because I was remembering how cool um, Mm -hmm. this story begins. But that's what sticks with me more than anything else about this book is that we perspective and the fact that we don't really know who the we is supposed to be right at some point I thought it was supposed to be us and Murakami like the reader and Murakami and and that's a kind of an, another interesting take because that first part whether you're talking about this uh, bird's eye view of Tokyo or us sort of finding Mari in the Denny's is very cinematic in the way that he describes it and it, it does kind of feel like it's supposed to be us and him or even like it's some kind of like tour group that, that it has that kind of vibe but at other points I don't think that I I think it's sort of this collective entity that we don't really know much about or it could be something else entirely and I it's just totally bizarre 
Um, and that's maybe for me, one of the biggest things that stuck with me too. Like every time I closed this book, I would be, who the hell is that? Who is the we? Why is the, why is this book from a we perspective? Because it, it really did not need to be from a we perspective by any means. It still would have been a great book. And so that's one of those things that is like those questions that's like, if you could have a dinner party with one famous person, who would it be? I'm going to be like, I want to have Murakami over so I can ask him what was going through your head when you made that choice? Because it was genius, but also like, what? And how fun is that from a, not only a reader's perspective, but a writing perspective? It is so fun when you have this piece and like it clicks in your head. Oh, I could play with it in this way to make it feel like something. You know what I mean? Yes. So fun when when there's that moment and you get to play with your writing like that. I love that so much. Totally. And yeah, it really, it really makes you think, was there a version of this where it wasn't from a we perspective? Because that's the one other thing I want to touch on before I move, move on to the rest of our scale too, is he gets you incredibly close to the other characters. Even though it's from a we perspective, he never shifts perspective. He doesn't now say it's from uh Mari's point of view like you know how some books will do that and they'll switch back and forth between chapters or whatever he doesn't do that but he gets very close to the characters and their body movements and almost gets to what they're thinking about um and kind of gets inside of their head and I think that's a real talent of his his as well and I think that's something that I guess he he didn't have to do since it was from a wee perspective. He didn't have to get us that close to the characters. He could have given us this bird's eye view or as if we're a camera a few feet away, picking up on bits of language the entire time. But instead he zooms in. And I guess I might get into that a little bit more when we talk about characterization, um, because I think that's another thing that kind of sticks out to me in this book. But yeah, I gave it a 10 for form and stylization. Like straight up, it's basically as good as it gets. And then for shelf worthy, this kind of now Marissa goes back into what you were just talking about a little bit. 100% shelf worthy. Uh, I gave this a nine because you were kind of talking about how like, what an interesting thing as a writer to be able to play with that, or as just a reader even to be able to play with that. And I think this is the kind of book that you kind of turn to again and again for inspiration. So like, for example, I specifically turned to this book when I was writing, I, I turned to Murakami when I was writing my thesis. And I think this is a, it's the kind of book that can teach you things is basically what I'm trying to say. Um, and I think you can turn to it again and again and learn from it because of how good of a story it was, but also because of the stylization in the form. And I think you'll also want to read it again and again because it's just that good. And I think it's probably one of those books that you miss stuff the first time you read it. And when you read right. it, again, you go, oh my God, he was doing that from the first page mm -hmm. or, you know, little things like that. And the other thing I just always think about with this book is that, so I was calling it a road odyssey. And I actually didn't see that someone else call it that. I think that's exactly what it boils down to in a sense. And I have these like grand dreams of teaching a class one day about road odysseys where you could you know like start with the odyssey and then do other examples that I don't want to call copies of the odyssey but we have to realize that it's a form that has been has evolved and kind of happens again and again so like obviously there's on the road Jack Kerouac 
right. that's the road, the road odyssey. Um, but I think there's probably so many other examples throughout literature. And I think this is one of them. So nobody- I've never read the book. Yeah. But I saw the movie Paper Towns. Paper Towns is a road odyssey. <laughs> it totally is. It's a road odyssey, please. It so is. And there's so many though. So I just think like, for anybody, probably a lot of English majors, I feel like we're going to listen to this podcast and like thinking about like, if I could teach a class, that's how my brain works. Sometimes I'll be reading a book and being like, now this is what I would put in this syllabus. Like, I have no idea why my brain works like that, but it's, you know, it's how it is. And I love that. That's so fun. <laughs> I feel like we talked about it last time that our brains are kind of broken from the BFA program. Absolutely. And, <laughs> and that's just one of the many ways. Um, so shelf-worthy, yes. Plot, I gave this an eight with plot. I loved the plot and I didn't see any loose ends. Um, but while I was looking into critique of the book online in prep for this, I noticed that a lot of people very much did not like the ending of this book. And I'm kind of trying to figure out why. Um, I can't really tell if people thought it didn't wrap up all clean and nice enough for them if they felt like they were kind of left hanging by the end of the book or what or maybe people thought exactly the opposite I can't really tell but if it is people if there is critique of it for not wrapping up in the way that you would kind of expect um, I don't think it was supposed to and I'm actually of the belief that books should not wrap up neatly because loose ends feel very real to me it's the way life works and also kind of just a spin-off here but I'm always of this belief when it comes to things like horror which I know we're going to be able to talk about a lot on this podcast because anytime a horror movie or book has a nice ending I'm like what the heck did I just waste my time watching that and this is not horror but it is magical realism And so I think the same thing sort of applies. Like you've already presented the reader with something so strange, a world so ajar. Why would you suddenly give them a textbook ending? Right. So there is critique of, I guess, the plot are out there, but I didn't really feel the same way. I liked the ending. And as I said, I liked that times felt like it was passing quicker at the end. I think I think everything he did was very strategic. And so at some point, too, you also have to respect. You don't have to. You can critique it all you want. He did whatever he did. He did it on purpose. So I'm like, hey, that's the way he ended it. I'll take mm-hmm. it. And that's maybe just how I feel about him as a writer, too. Like, you, I guess you have a little bit of a different perspective when you're talking about one of your favorite writers than somebody you don't really know or care about. But that's how I felt. And the only place that I ranked this book even a little bit lower was characterization because a ten, a nine on the characterization scale for us is I'm invested in these characters. I can relate and or understand them. I was present and carried throughout. Um, this is one of those books where I was certainly connected to every single character and there were characters I really liked too. But I feel almost like it was another one of those that the characters were not the most important part of the story. Mm -hmm. They were important in conjunction with the themes, the setting, the plot. But it wasn't one of those books where nothing else matters but these characters. Everything else was sort of kind of 
up on the same level with them in importance, in my opinion. Um, so that's the only reason I didn't rank that super, super high. But like I said, I really liked all of the characters and I do really like Mari and she has this really unique arc that I really appreciated in terms of how she feels about herself and how she feels about her sister. And, and this is another moment where I kind of wanted to, since we have an avenue here, I guess, to talk about our favorite writers is I personally think that Murakami is very, very good at shifting between different characters. So for example, in his short story collections, he'll have you with uh, a college aged boy and then he'll have you with a suburban mother and then he'll have you with all these different people. And I think he takes on different voices very well. Even, so this is not an example of that because we have this we perspective in this book, but you get very close to, to Mari still. But even when he does that classic first person singular perspective that he's known for, I think he's really good at making the characters different each time. And, you know, he's a boomer dude. And I think he does a good job of switching to women, women of different ages. But I will say also that every great author is not without critique because his most recent collection of short stories, First Person Singular, which I think a lot of people are saying, oh, it's a classic. When they saw the title, they were like classic, like so many of Murakami's short stories are First Person Singular. And then there was a lot of critique about the book. And I was like, no way. And I read it and I did not like it one bit. There was one mm, story in it that I, I liked, but not nearly as much as it's, um, it's a story that is sort of a spinoff of one of his older stories. So there's a story I liked, but not mm. nearly as much as its predecessor. And two other stories I kind of liked, but everything else I literally hated. And one of the critiques was that they were misogynistic. And I was like, not ready for that. And then they were. And it was one of those things too, where I couldn't tell if he was being ironic or not, but I, I don't, I think he was being ironic and he wasn't being ironic at the same time. And so this is all to say, I'm seeing a lot of discourse online of people thinking that there's two different things happening. There's people thinking that it's him writing these characters from his classic first person singular perspective. And then there's people thinking, no, this was a memoir. This was him in every single story. And that makes me think that people are out here thinking that some of his other stories are from his perspective, which, I mean, I could do a whole episode on this alone, but I just want to say that I think his most recent book, most of the stories are autofiction, it seems. I can't claim to know him, um, mm -hmm. but when you look at the themes, they seem like they might be kind of based on his life as well. But I think to boil it down to he's often writing stories from this first person singular perspective and it's really him in the stories is doing his work an injustice because I think from what I've read of his work he is very very talented in switching between different people different kinds of people um and the after this is all to say that after dark is you know kind of an example of him even though he took on this wee perspective he got us very close to at least three or four different kinds of people. And that got us very close to their, their perspective and he did it well. So, Hey, sometimes, Hey, <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with that, but 
I guess that's where I'll taper things off. I love that. I was thinking about how his works are translated. And honestly, I always used to hate that. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to read translations. I want to read the real thing, even though I cannot. Mm-hmm. But after I went to Berlin and I, we mentioned that last time, didn't we? I swear I'm not a girl who obsesses over the one time that I studied abroad. <laughs> it just happens to come up. But um, I took a translation class when I was in Berlin. And after that class, I found this new appreciation for translated works and um, how they can have different meanings, but follow the lines of what the author wanted and um it's it's really like an act of detective work and kind of like puzzling it together and it's really fun I highly suggest if anyone is even a little bit actually you don't even need to know the language really in my opinion pick your favorite poem or even a paragraph from your favorite book and go online and just look up all of the different words in a different language that can mean one word in a poem and then make a list of all those. And then you get to put it together and try to understand how to make that poem in a different language, in a tra- like in a translated way. Super, super cool. I used to love doing that. But so I actually am interested how you said he, the translator is really close to Murakami's writing and I think that that's so interesting and I mean good for him because that it's hard to do but it's yeah. super fun no that's like shout out to shout out to Jay shout out to Jay Rubin yeah Jay, um, look at you go who obviously must know him too I have to think yeah it's another one of those things that I would have to look into but yeah it is an art in and of itself you have to it be is. incredibly talented to do it because I know okay so like a little bit of Ashu, but one time I was looking for a copy of Murakami's short story, The Mirror, and we had read it in a class and we had a good copy of it. But for some reason, I didn't go into like my files to get it. And I just searched Murakami The Mirror and I found like a version online that was not translated by the person that we had read it. And it was different because I was looking for that. Uh, there's like this beginning quote that I wanted to use as like an epigraph and it was just different. And you kind of forget that this is even translated because when it's translated by these few specific people that obviously work very closely to Murakami and have captured his style really well, they sound exactly the same. I feel like there's probably people and I know people that are just absolutely obsessed with Murakami. Everything he writes, they read and they like know like everything about him. His style is so specific, even when it's translated into English, that if you presented them with language without saying this is Murakami, this is what book it was from, they would be able to say, oh, yeah, like that's Murakami. And that just, I guess, shows how talented the translators are that no matter the book or the short story, when you get when you get an edition that is or a copy of it, that is, um, you know, one of these really gifted translators, it sounds it sounds exactly the same as Mm -hmm. any of his previous work. And it's nice that we still have Murakami here. He's not very old. Um, I mean, he's kind of old, but sorry. Um, But (laughs) I I would wonder what happened. It's different when maybe the people aren't around anymore. 
and the translations change and there are so many different versions and I'm sure people like spend their whole careers finding different versions of one text and comparing them based on how the translator decided to go about it the second thing that I wanted to say Mm -hmm. is from the mouth of one of the greatest people in the world um Annie Planker yes there is no closure there is that's what Annie taught me even in real life no closure even if you think that you had a conversation with that person no closure doesn't exist shout out to Annie Planker for the analysis of the century it's really carried me through life that's our girl that's Um, our hero but I actually think about that a lot when I'm writing. Mm-hmm. I tend to, I mean, I don't do it so much anymore because I'm probably trained not to after years of school, but I used to want to tie all my stories up all neat and cute and whatever. And it's just, it's cliche. Yeah. It's strange. There are definitely ways to do it, but closure doesn't exist anyway. So if you are trying to tie something up, it's gonna, I think if you're reading it, it's gonna seem odd in some way. Yeah. Yes. So good for him on doing his story his way. Very much. A hundred percent. Yeah. Hey, so that's why After Dark by Haruki Murakami is one of my favorite books of all time. I haven't read it, but um, it's definitely on the to be read list. I think maybe read it as your first Murakami novel. Um, if you haven't read one of his other novels, I've read a couple of his short stories, but I haven't read um, a novel. Yeah, do it. Make it your first. Why not? Everybody will yeah. tell you. They'll tell you Kafka on the shore. They'll tell you Norwegian Wood. Don't do this wait, one wait. first. Is Norwegian Wood the one that Harry Styles likes? That is the one Harry Styles likes. I might have to read that one first because of my boy. Also. Is Norwegian Wood a Beatles? Is that a Beatles reference? It is a Beatles song. Yeah. But when was it written? Because I don't know which one came first. The the song or the book. (laughs) I didn't even think of that because Murakami, first of all, loves the Beatles. That's like a fact about him. It came out in 87. So it came out. Fun fact. Fun fact about Murakami. He loves the Beatles. Um, I have had, I'm not trying to, well, do we think Harry Styles just pulled that out of his ass one day? Or do we think that he genuinely, like, really, really loves that book? Um, I wouldn't say he really, really loves it. I would say he's probably read it once and was like, good book. <laughs> good. <story. laughs> the song was apparently released in 65. Okay, so it's written after the song. And so Murakami loves the Beatles. Harry loves the Beatles. I will say... I have heard, I mean, I love that song. It is one of my favorite Beatles songs. Yeah. A little, a little misogynistic. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah. I'm pretty sure I heard, I'm not sure, but I heard it's about like, they try to get this girl to sleep with them and she's like, I'm good. And then they like burn her house down with her inside or something. Um, damn. Okay. I never like (laughs) listened to it with such vigor. Ouch. I mean, I 
was one of those kids when I was seven years old who was like, oh, I'm cooler than everyone because I like the Beatles. Yeah, sure. Uh, kids Bob? No, I can't do that. I got the Beatles, please. He's Eleanor Rigby or Bud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was me. So I I have some Beatles trivia in the noggin. It's in there. Well, what the heck? The more you know, man. The, the more you know. Either way, I will read both eventually. Yes, yes. We'll get, yeah, we'll get to it. Not in a rush. <laughs> um, but yeah, those are kind of all my thoughts about After Dark. Um, so if we want to take a little intermission and have some little sweet tunes by Lexi Anderson and then get back to it with um, Marissa's favorite. Sounds like playing. Okay, so my one of my favorites that I picked was Imaginary Friend by Stephen Chbosky. And if you recognize his name, anyone out there? Anyone? Yeah. He wrote The Perks of Being a Wallflower. And he actually does quite a bit of screenwriting. He wrote the screenplay for quite a few um, popular movies and such. But in terms of books, he only has two. One of which being The Perks, which was released in 99, um, before I was even born, just a few months before I uh, was live. And then his second and only other book is the book that we will be talking about today, Imaginary Friend. And I think this book came out in either 2020 or 2019. I believe it was 2020. But let me just say, it was worth every second of the 20-ish year wait for it because it is a masterpiece. It is beyond good and I feel like this is something that there would be a lot that would have to be broken in a writer for you to have to write this book because he plays with so much. So let's get right on into the little chart. For readability, I gave it a 10 without question. I read this on vacation on a tropical paradise island, and I could not put it down. I was reading it on the beach, in taxis, in the hotel room, before I went to bed. Literally, any time I had a chance to read, I would be reading this book. And if we, um, I don't know, went on an excursion or something, and I couldn't read for whatever reason, if we were at dinner or whatever, I was sitting there thinking about this book being like, oh my God, the amount of feelings I have for this book can never be explained. It's 100% a binge book. Don't think that you could read multiple books at the time that you're reading this book. You can't because you will only think about this book. Don't think you could read this book and then go to work for eight hours. No, no, no. You like You have to finish this book in a timely manner it has to be read on the hour because it's just so good like you I I could never stop reading never stop thinking about it when I was making the 
chart, our rating scale, this is actually the book that I thought a lot about. And I was like, if I was comparing this book to other books, and I also thought of a couple of my other favorites, but it was mainly this one, like what, how would I compare them? And what would make this book above the rest and things like that. So next form and style. Like I said before, this feels like a 20 plus year book because it's that good. It plays with everything. There are different fonts, multiple different fonts within the book, different font sizes. Uh, He plays with spacing, punctuation. Um, He even plays with the pages. Um, There are fragment sentences that work. Standard grammar doesn't always apply. Sometimes he even lets the end of a sentence be its own line for emphasis, maybe, I'm assuming. Let's just read a little bit of this page. This is very early on in the book, first 40 pages. There was silence, no crying, no wind, no voice. Christopher looked around the clearing and saw nothing but the trail of footprints leading to the tree. It stood in the middle of the clearing, crooked like an old man's arthritic hands, reaching out of the earth like it was trying to pluck a bird from the sky. Christopher couldn't help himself. He followed the footsteps. He walked up to the tree and touched it, but it didn't feel like bark or wood. It felt like flesh. Christopher jumped back. It hit him suddenly. This horrible feeling that this was wrong. Everything was wrong. He shouldn't be here. He looked down to find the trail again. He had to get out of here. His mom would be so worried. He found the trail. He saw the little kid tracks, but there was something different about them now. There were handprints next to them, like a little kid walking on all fours. Crack. Christopher turned around. Something had stepped on a branch. He could hear creatures walking up all around him, surrounding the clearing. Christopher didn't hesitate. He started to run, following the trail out. He reached the edge of the clearing, back into the woods. But the minute he stepped under the trees, he stopped. The trail was gone. He looked around for it, but the sky was getting darker. The clouds were covering the stars now, and the moon was shining through the cloud face like a pirate's good eye. It's amazing. It's so good. There was one line. It's kind of hard to hear it out loud. I would highly recommend if you're going to get this book, actually physically get it. Don't just buy like an audiobook or something because you have to see what he is doing here. Um, so there's the one part that I read. Christopher looked around the clearing and saw nothing but the trail of footprints leading to the tree. So where it says leading to, it indents immediately and a new little line starts that just says the tree. And then there's the punctuation. How bizarre. Isn't that so strange? And he does it so often in the book. And it is so good. Like your brain automatically reads it. Yeah. To the point where like it really hits you. Yeah. (laughs) It just, it's so good. Also, uh, the comedic timing in this book is really, really good. There's also the horror timing in this book is amazing. Every little thing to give you goosebumps, he just does it at the right moment. And there's never too much of it. I would say, even if you are a seasoned horror reader, horror fan, whatever, this book will still creep you the F out. And I like genuinely do not know how he does it this good. 
another thing I would want to talk about is he does, he switches the point of view pretty frequently. I think about every chapter is someone different. And I would say it's one character chapter, but I think it's omniscient point of view, but he's definitely doing something strange here that makes me question exactly who the narrator is. Just for a little example, there's a character in this book who his name's Ed, but all the kids at school make fun of him and call him special Ed. So all throughout the book, he's referred to as special Ed. And it doesn't matter if his best friend is talking to him. It doesn't matter if it's um, from one of the mom's point of view or even his own mom's point of view. He's still referred to as special Ed, which makes me feel like it's not exactly the parent. And if you do read this book, there is kind of a stranger force at play. So I do wonder if this is like a book thief situation. You know how like in the book thief, death is actually the narrator. I do wonder if something like that is going on in this book. And honestly, I did not realize it until a couple of days ago when I was writing my notes for this book and I thought about it and I was like, wow, so cool. So without a doubt, I gave it um, an eight. And the reason why I took off a couple other points is because I do realize that this book could be a little much for people um, in terms of all the crazy stuff that he's doing. It could go over people's heads completely or rub them the wrong way. But to me, is amazing. If, if you are a writer, I definitely think this is a book to read, whether you think you'll like it or not, simply because it is going to, it's going to literally crack the inside of you like a glow stick. And something inside of you is going to glow and like attract little inspiration fireflies for all the strange things with form that he's doing. Because that's what it did for me. I don't know. Is it shelf worthy? Give this a nine. Absolutely. Go get it right now. Like, like now. <laughs> like, like pause the podcast. Go get it. Go run to the store. Go get it. I will, I will wait. I'll be back here when you're done. Actually, play me in the car on the way there. Go ahead. I think that you could read this over and over and over and over. And there are so many details that are hidden throughout this book that you probably will not catch on the first time. There's so many things that loop in the book that I didn't realize were looping until I was close to the end. It's There are just so many little things. And it's kind of like a puzzle story in the sense that you can literally put things together from this book. More on that in a minute. So for plot, I gave it between a nine and a 10. It's very, very well-rounded. Um, there's mystery, there's some comedy, there's a little bit of romance. I would say there's coming of age and like a little bit of boyhood story in here. There's definitely horror. I feel like if you want it, it's going to be in this book. And those personally are my favorite kinds of books. Also, on top of all that, there's this really beautiful like mother and son story happening where, I mean, I'm definitely probably one of the furthest things from ever being a mother but I truly could feel the relationship between this mother and this son and how far they will go for each other um it's not it's not like not to knock the poltergeist poltergeist is great 
but it's not just like, oh, this is a mother like saving her daughter because parents love their kids. Like, no, this is a two-way story. This is this mother and this son have always had only each other pretty much. And they're going to do anything for each other. Even the son, if you wrote down his, a little character sheet for him, his main goal would be protecting his mom constantly. And he's seven years old. It's always keeping you on the toe on your toes. I never really knew when he was going to throw something at me. I, and he just did. And I was constantly like blown away. Again, you're all, it is a puzzle. Like you're always trying to piece things together and it's, it's not predictable. Really? There are a few things where I was like, Ooh, I think that this is going to happen. But it wasn't like, oh, like, this is so freaking annoying. Like, I know this is going to happen. How predictable. It was like, I think that this is going to happen. And I hope that this is going to happen. And then it would happen. And it would feel like the most rewarding thing ever to actually connect the dots in this story. There are some great connections that are throughout the story. Really good twists. I would say if you're reading this book and you think you know what is going on, you you probably don't guess again because something's going to be thrown at you for characterization i gave it a 9 um it's really easy to connect to just about any character um and i think that's really because he takes his time with his characters not one character felt rushed or brushed over and if there's a character in this story even if it's just like they pass that person at the store. That person is somehow important. There is something in this story that is going to come back and connect that person to the whole story. Every single character introduced was really developed. They had their background and they came back in the story in some really important way. And I don't think I've ever seen anything done like that. I mean, I have seen stories with few characters where all of them are pretty important to the plot, but I've never seen one where someone that I'm like, oh, okay, cool, like a little side character. I've never seen that side character come back to make such um, an impact on me as a reader from a story. Um, And that's really, really interesting. Another thing I want to touch on is with the characterization, going back to the mother and the son, their relationship is established super, super early. And it's felt throughout um, so much that the 40 pages into this story, not only was I completely addicted to it, but I was also devastated. (laughs) There's this one thing that happens um, and Stephen puts one word on each page and just like flipping through those pages and reading those words. I had full body chills and like my heart felt completely broken. I, and I was just so worried and it, it kept me completely wanting to read nonstop. I really love this story and that's about all I have to say about that. Everyone go get it. I literally have half a mind to actually leave after this podcast and go buy it. Um, <laughs> okay. I have so many thoughts. But the first thing I want to say after your lovely review was, oh, my God, if there's one thing Stephen Chbosky is going to do, it's cause you strife. Um, because 
The Perks of Being a Wallflower is one of my favorite books of all time. And even I read it as a little kid. I think I was in seventh grade the first time I read it, maybe eighth grade. And then I read it again. Wow. I don't even know how many times in high school. And then I didn't read it for a long time. And then I read it again as a junior in college. And it hurt me still. And this book kind of sounds like it's the same, like it's going to hurt you and it's going to terrify you and it's going to disturb you, but it's also so amazing. So that was really fun to hear about. And then also it's fun hearing your writer friends talk about books they love because knowing now that one of your favorite books is this and hearing you talk about how he plays with form makes so much sense Mm -hmm. Uh, because some people listening to this will have seen Marissa's writing and some maybe not. But if you don't know, Marissa is always doing crazy stuff with form and it's so interesting. And she is always doing something different. Like it's not exactly like what she was describing that Stephen Chbosky does in Imaginary Friend, but it feels um, inspired And so that is just always fun because any writer you meet, their favorite authors are maybe going to write a little bit like them, which I think is always kind of fun to to figure out. But wow. Yeah, that book sounds insane. It's so good. I want to read it so bad. You have to. I didn't have service when I was reading it because I was on vacation in a different country, but my dad did. And I was like, my one uncle, he like reads books that I like tons of tons and tons of books. So we always exchange books. And I was like, you need to text Uncle Adam right now and tell him he has to get this book. And my dad's like, no, like we're on vacation. And I was like, you don't understand. <laughs> um, it's amazing. And and it's it's interesting. I was thinking about this book, which is definitely magical realism. Mm-hmm. And I was comparing it to um the perks which not magical realism no but um he does do that really interesting thing in the perks where as charlie is reading more and getting better the writing in the book also gets better and so i can't say that i was i mean i was definitely surprised at everything he was doing in this but i was like I don't know why I should have, because I thought when I read the perks, I was also in about eighth grade, maybe freshman year, but, and I was like, this is brilliant. Like the way he's doing this with his writing is, is so good. So I don't know why I was so surprised when I opened this and I was like, oh my gosh, all the stuff he's doing with forms. So amazing. But it's just, it's so good. How, like, I want my brain to work like that. I want to knock on his door and be like, how? I'm going to put, I'm going to have the book in my hand. I'm going to point to it. I'm going to say, how you do this? Yeah, for real. So, so, so good. Everyone has to read it right now. Yeah. Right now. I don't make the rules. It's also cool reading the acknowledgements and all the people who have read it. Um, one of the first people who read this book was Emma Watson, actually. No way. Yes. And she loved it. And oh, I think they're like really good friends. Cute. After the perks, which I loved that. Shout out to Emma Watson, man. Like she said, give me the freaky stuff. We love her. Hermione. Oh, another thing. 
I did not know this because I haven't, nobody crucified me. I haven't read the Harry Potter books, but apparently um, J.K. Rowling does one of the same things with her books. I guess as she was writing them, she was gearing them towards her kids. So as the books progress, each one gets more advanced. And that's why like the last book is so dark because by that time her kids were like 18 years old. I didn't know that. Still interesting no matter what. And still interesting that Steven does that too. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Which, by the way, after I finish the book that I'm reading for our next episode, which we will announce in a hot second, um, I will be starting the first Harry Potter book, which we will eventually cover on a not yet determined future episode. Very excited about that. But yeah, 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 yeah. Good, good, good deal on that. And everyone has to go buy our favorite books immediately. immediately. And they have to read them immediately. And then they have to comment on our social medias and let us know how they liked them and um, they have to thank us and be eternally in our debt for recommending such amazing pieces of work. Hey, that's just it. That's just it. That's just it. And so if you are unaware um, of what our social medias are and you need them for when you have to thank us, guess what? We're here to help. (laughs) Um, So follow us on Instagram at LSMR podcast and Twitter at LSMR podcast um, and Facebook uh, at Little Sleep Much Reading podcast and lastly TikTok at LSMR podcast. It's pretty just from you. All you have to do is remember that that one username and you're good as gold. You're pretty much good. Yeah. And if you have any reading recommendations you want to send us. Yeah, why not? Send them. Give us a comment. Sign in our DMs. Yeah. Wow. Look at us go. Doing the damn thing. That was fun. I I love hearing people talk about their favorite things. Like, it's like my favorite thing. Yes, me too. talk about their favorite things. (laughs) Even if it's not your favorite thing. Just to see someone that you care about talking about their favorite things, it just lights you up. What could be better? What? There's nothing better. Nothing. So with that, um, we're going to announce next week's episode. It's going to be Agatha Christie themed. Yes, because it's her birthday the week it comes out. Yes. Well, she's dead. She, but she, she do be dead. Dead, but she still has a birthday. You just gave me like a weird look when I said birthday. You went, huh? And I went, oh, well, she is dead. Well, I was actually, I was going to say what day her birthday is, but I don't remember. I want to say it's like. I think it's on like the Monday or the Tuesday. I was going to say it's the Tuesday. I was going to say it's September 14th. Yeah. We'll go with that. We'll correct ourselves if we have to. (laughs) Maybe we will. We'll see. Maybe we'll just change her birthday to the 14th. (laughs) 14th of September. But that episode should be out on the 16th. So we can wish her a happy belated birthday then. With Kate. Um, I will be reading And Then There Are None. And Liza will be reading 
I am going to be reading uh, The Sidiford Mystery, which was previously published as The Murder of Hazelmore. Ooh. Ooh. So everyone get ready for that. And uh, we'll see you in the next episode. And Miss Lexi Anderson will take us out by uh, tickling some ivories. <laughs> She's just like in the corner. We're like, tickle the ivories. Like she starts. Um, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening. And see you next time. Next week. Bye. Bye. We're just buffaloes. Buffalo things. (laughs) Alrighty, should I go? Go ahead.